Notice anything different? That's right. No ad. Which means this space is available. So if you have a company or brand or product or anything really that you'd love to promote on 30 Pop, this is your chance. Just shoot me an email at the link in the show notes and I'll give you all the relevant details. Now, on to 30 Pop. You have one message. First message. Hello, I'm Joseph Marcel. I played Jeffrey in The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air long before you were born. (laughs) Welcome to this week's episode of 30 Pop. Enjoy. Message saved. No remaining messages. From Milieu Media Group, this is 30 Pop. A weekly peek back at the music, movies, sports, fashion, politics, and news from 30 years ago. I'm your host, Ruth Brawner. This is Season 2, Episode 37, Butlers, Banks, and Primetime Royalty. Today we're looking back at the week that ended Saturday, September 15, 1990. Hello, 30 Pop listeners, new and old, and welcome to another episode looking back exactly 30 years at what was happening in pop culture this week in 1990. I've been anxiously awaiting this episode for, like, ever. Why? Because 30 years ago this past week, on September 10th, 1990, one of my all-time favorite sitcoms starring one of my all-time favorite pop culture personalities debuted on NBC. The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, starring the Fresh Prince himself, Will Smith, as Will Smith. I was and am a super fan of this show since the night it premiered, and of Will Smith since long before even then. So when I started thinking about producing a podcast that looked back 30 years each week, I knew, no matter how few people cared to listen to this show, that I'd at least make it to this week in history to look back on this fantastic series. And now, here we are. And not only do I get to look back on it, I get to do so with two members of the cast. So in order that we might hurry up and get to the good stuff, I'm going to fly through a review of the other major pop culture headlines from this week in 1990. As you already know, if you've been listening to this show for any time at all, the top album in the country this week was, for the 14th of the last 15 weeks, MC Hammer's multi-platinum selling sophomore release, Please Hammer Don't Hurt Em. No surprise there, although we are finally nearing the end of his reign at the top. Another pretty major rap album released on September 11th, 1990, though. The sixth studio album from West Coast rap icon Too Short, Short Dogs in the House. As far as the Billboard charts go, this album performed better than Short's 1989 album, Life Is Too Short, but still didn't make a major splash in the mainstream. Regardless, among his peers, especially in the West Coast rap scene, Short was a legend and a massive influence on so many big-name acts that followed. This album was notable in that one track featured former NWA member Ice Cube, marking the first time major rap artists from Northern and Southern California collaborated on a song. In other music news, the top songs on the various Billboard singles charts this week in 1990 included, once again, D-Nice, they call me D-Nice, at the top of the hot rap chart, Alabama's Jukebox in My Mind at the top of the Hot Country chart, and Newcomers, Lies by In Vogue at number one on the Hot R&B and Hip Hop chart, 
and Release Me by Wilson Phillips at number one on the Hot 100, marking the second appearance at number one for each of those vocal groups in 1990. Continuing on, the number one film at the box office this week in 1990 was the somewhat autobiographical comedy drama written by Carrie Fisher, Postcards from the Edge, directed by Mike Nichols and starring about a hundred great actors. Just came by to say hi, make sure that everything's up to snuff. And we're gonna need a drug screen. Excuse me? It's a formality of the business. So do you want blood or urine? I think urine would be fine. And uh, we'll see you outside, okay? Have fun. Thanks. Hello, dear. Hi, Mama. No, you see, she's exactly like me when I was her age. What I'm doing, I, I feel like I belong after film. I, I never stopped working. I know how to do that. It was very good therapy for me after my divorce and my miscarriages. Good times and bum times, I've seen them all in my dear. Ever since I was about seven, I wanted to be you. Bart does you in his drag show. I am still here. How would you like to have Joan Crawford for a mother? Oh, or please. Lana Turner? These are the options. Are you sure I didn't sleep with you? Sleep? Yeah. I was with him Saturday night. That's two girls in one day. Yeah. Yeah, that's just the ones we know about. You said you loved me. I meant it at the time. Well, what is it? A viral love? Kind of a 24-hour thing? Never let him see you ache. That's what Mr. Mary used to say. What was it, ass? Never let him see your ass. You know, you were a lot more fun when you were loaded. No! 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 Relax. They're blank. I don't get your generation's humor half the time. Remember my 17th birthday party when you lifted your skirt up in front of all those I people? I did not including lift my, my guy skirt. Michael. It's world up! And you weren't wearing any underwear. Meryl Streep. Shirley MacLaine. In a Mike Nichols film. Oh, Lowell, I'm sorry. Postcards from the Edge. Oh, me, I never saw this movie and didn't think I'd ever even heard of it until watching the trailer in preparation for this episode. I definitely remember the trailer, but at 10 years old would have had zero interest in seeing it. Although admittedly now it doesn't look half bad. Being the top film at the box office, though, unfortunately in this case, likely had less to do with the greatness of this movie and more to do with its competition. There were two other films that released in theaters this week in 1990, and while I certainly have the range of appreciation within me to enjoy each of them for what they are, I can also readily admit these were objectively and without debate terrible movies. First up, Jean-Claude Van Damme in Death Warrant. First, he demolished the supreme player in the most brutal sport in the world. Then, he crushed the competition in a contest nobody plays for kicks. Now, what's the problem? He faces a new challenge. Only this time, there are no rules. And nobody's playing games. Detective Burke, we want to send you undercover into Harrison as a prisoner. Van Damme is Burke. You're not going to last too long. It's the threat. It's a promise. He's got the toughest job a cop can do. Prisoners ain't cops. 
more than anything else. It's a hit list. You're a dead man. His cover has been blown. What are you doing in my prison? It's too late. You dare to say Your number's next on the list. And the odds are impossible. Welcome to hell! Van Damme. He loves a good fight. Like I said, terrible. As was this little failed Halloween season cash grab from the always otherwise endearingly ridiculous Leslie Nielsen. Not long ago, an entire world watched as a little girl and a holy exorcist battled and cast out the devil himself. But now... Linda Blair's been repossessed. And this is the only man who could possibly save her. <laughs> Leslie Nielsen. I couldn't find my butt with both my hands. Linda Blair. God created man in his own image. Then how do you explain Pee Wee Herman? Repossessed. Of, of, of course I love you, yeah. Tonight, no, no. No feathers will use a whole chicken. Coming soon. I do remember this movie coming out, but again, never saw it. I probably would have loved it as a kid, despite never seeing the Exorcist movies, of which it was a parody, until I was well into my late 30s. I'd have loved it simply because it had Leslie Nielsen in it, and I was a big fan of Naked Gun at the time. Although I probably didn't really understand most of the jokes in that movie either. Anyway, in television this week in 1990, we had several more series premieres besides just Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. On September 10th, CBS also introduced us to the first TV version of Uncle Buck, starring comedian Kevin Meany as the title character. Uncle Buck produced a total of 22 episodes, but only wound up airing 16 of them, much unlike the series that premiered a few nights later on NBC, which ran for 20 seasons, producing 456 episodes and spinning off five American series, multiple international adaptations, and one made-for-TV movie. The series, Law & Order. Despite the massive success of this show, I can honestly say I don't think I've ever seen a single episode of it or any of its spinoffs all the way through. Certainly not on purpose. On September 14th, however, CBS gave us a show that I watched pretty religiously. One of the last cartoons that I remember loving as a kid. Presented by Steven Spielberg, Tiny Toon Adventures. Tiny Toon Adventures. 
We're tiny, we're toony, we're all a little loony. And in this cartoony, we're invading your TV. We're comic dispensers, we crack up all the censors. On Chinese adventures, get a dose of comedy. So here's at the acres, it's a whole wide world apart. Our homes we home stand alone, a cartoon work of art. Let's rip where we kicked it, expect the unexpected. On Chinese adventures, it's about to start. They're furry, they're funny. I remember loving this show so, so much. Even as I was beginning to sort of age out, or so I believed, of my love for cartoons and into more sophisticated programming. And on Saturday morning, September 15th, 1990, we got two more cartoons to add to our weekly viewing habit. From CBS, the animated version of one of 30 Pop's favorite franchises, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventures. I had been selected for a most important journey. I was to help fulfill the destiny of the two great ones, Bill and Ted. Wild Stallions rule! Whenever time stands still and trouble moves too fast, to say the future, we must learn about the past. Whoa! I'm sure I watched this short-lived series, but if I'm honest, I have no specific memories of having done so. I just know I loved the first movie enough that there's no way I'd have missed out on this, no matter how good or bad it may have been. And lastly, from TBS, the most environmentally friendly animated series the world has ever known, Captain Planet and the Planeteers. Our world is in peril. Gaia, the spirit of the Earth, can no longer stand the terrible destruction plaguing our planet. She sends five magic rings to five special young people. Watch from Africa with the power of Earth. From North America, we with the power of fire. From the Soviet Union, Minka with the power of wind. From Asia, Yi with the power of water. And from South America, Mati with the power of heart. When the five powers combine, they summon Earth's greatest champion, Captain Planet. I'll be honest, there are a few shows in that mix that I would love to talk more about, but none of them come even remotely close to my love for Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. So, let's finally get to it. 
Back in late May, I began working on this episode and reached out to pretty much everyone involved with the show to invite them on the podcast. It felt like a long shot for sure, but to my great delight, I got an email back after a couple days saying that Joseph Marcel, the actor who played the role of Jeffrey, the butler, would love to be a guest on 30 Pop. So we hopped on a Zoom call, as you do, and had a blast chatting about the show. Here's our conversation. Joseph Marcel, thank you so much for being on 30 Pop. It is such an honor for me to get to have this conversation with you today. Thank you very much, Doug. It's a, it's a pleasure for me, too. I'm, I'm so nervous. It's been a long time since I've been able to talk to anybody. So we're recording this in the midst of lots of self-quarantining. COVID-19 is running rampant, but this episode is releasing 30 years to the week from the premiere of The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, on which you played... Jeffrey, the butler. Yes, I did. Yes, 1990. Yes. A theater actor from London going off to Hollywood to be in a, a hit sitcom. It's amazing. Tell me all about that. So how did that happen? How did you find out about the role, audition, and get cast for the role of Jeffrey? You know, there are a lot of stories. I mean, it's almost legend, I suppose. But from my point of view, it was simply, I happened to have been at UCLA on tour with the Royal Shakespeare Company in uh, 1987 or 89, I can't remember, playing Angelo in Measure for Measure and, and a couple of other things. And somebody had seen me in it. It was an event when the Royal Shakespeare Company visits Los Angeles. And then the following year, there was an opening in the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air and somebody said, I saw this actor with the Royal Shakespeare Company. Perhaps he's the person you should get. And of course, I moved on from the Royal Shakespeare Company. You try to be as interesting as you can as an actor, never to be sort of labeled. And uh, I think they finally found me. And when they found me, I was playing in an August Wilson play in West London. And the play was called Joe Turner's Come and Gone. I put an audition on tape at that time. It was sent off to uh, Los Angeles. The report came back. Two days later, they wanted me to do it again, and they'd give me certain directions that I should follow, which I had done. Two days later, we sent it off, and then two days later, they said they'd like me in Los Angeles tomorrow. And my, my agent said, he's very flattered and is wonderful, but unfortunately, he has another week to go in the play, and we don't have the system in Britain where you can uh, leave and have a, a replacement, he has to stay to the end of the contract, which is what I did. And the following weekend, I was on a plane to Los Angeles. I arrived in Burbank at the Burbank Universal Hotel. I walked into my room. There were messages. People were calling me. Everybody seemed to know me, and I knew no one. I arrived on a Sunday. The Monday morning, I was taken to NBC Burbank the main base, and uh, there I met Will Smith, Quincy Jones, Debbie Allen, who directed the first episode, and the wonderful, uh, God rest his soul, James Avery. Mm. And we struck a friendship, Avery and I, because we were both waiting to audition, and we, we smoked a cigarette, and we talked, and he said, uh, hey man, you got an accent, where are you from? I said, well, I'm from London, I, I've come to see 
about this thing. And he said, oh, they brought you all this way? I said, well, yeah, I suppose they have. He said, oh, you got it, you got it, don't worry. So what role are you going up for? I said, well, I'm going up for the butler. Jeff said, I'm going up for that too. <laughs> he, he wasn't, he was going up for the uncle. So I think he was trying to either put me at ease or make me understand that it was, you know, it was all right, don't, don't be so nervous. So I did it all and uh, then I waited and went into the room, I met Will, we laughed a bit and I don't think Will had ever met anyone like me before. And Were you familiar with him at all? Did you know who he was? I think I'd heard of his hit record, uh, Parents Don't Understand. I yeah. think that was- He'd already won a Grammy at that point, so. Yes. Uh, and uh, we, we started, we worked a bit, and then he started improvising around it. And, and I went with him, and then he tried some physical comedy, and I went with that, and he was amazed. He said, yeah, I love you, man. You, you, can, you, can, you seem to be able to move with everything I do. So, and then we came to another bit, and I said, um, are we on the script now, or are we improvising? He said, we're improvising, man. So we just, I was lucky enough that, you know, the muse was sitting on my shoulder, and it worked out. So I went out, and I waited, and they saw many other people. And most people were saying, you know, man, they wouldn't have brought you all this way if you hadn't got the job. I mean, you know, it's, it's part of the system. But I, I didn't think it was that easy. And finally, the people came down, Debbie Allen and Mr. Quincy Jones and the people, and they said, well, uh, are you prepared to start work tomorrow morning? I said, well, yes, that's why I'm here. <laughs> and that was it. I mean, it sounds, <laughs> I sound a little blasé about it, but I wasn't. I mean, it was, it was very nervous making because uh, Hollywood was never part of my kind of, my firmament at that time. I mean, I considered myself a serious actor. I didn't think, you know, I had the looks, the height, all the humor to be in anything Hollywood. But that's amazing because you're truly one of the funniest characters on the show. I mean, like, Jeffrey always has this like really dry, sort of condescending humor that I just, I just love it. I've been re watching episodes. It was one of the early episodes. There's a moment where I guess the banks are headed to Palm Springs for the weekend and you're supposed to be having a weekend <laughs> off and you're loading all their bags and you're like, I'll just tend to my hernia next weekend or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> this very normal, condescending humor that I love so much. I mean, that was especially Andy and Susan Borowitz who were the creators of the show. And I think they did write especially well for me. And what I loved about the way they wrote for me was that I think the phrase now is zingers. You know, he has these zingers. But everything was precise and accurate. I mean, uh, his moments were perfect. And uh, it was a blessing. It was really nice. I enjoyed it. There was never one moment in the six years that I wished I was doing something else. It was all engrossing. And James and Karen and Alfonso and Tatiana and Daphne and everybody. I mean, just... just it was magical. And Will was always, <laughs> Will, <laughs> Will always had that impish kind of mischief about him. I remember we were waiting, we had a problem once. We were waiting for a moment for some of the set or something had happened. And we're all sitting around and we started this game that everybody can be Jeffrey better than Jeffrey. So. 
but they got the tray and they got these glasses and and you know people were doing yes oh yes yeah, so I can be Jeffrey with glasses and so, so I thought I can do this better than you will said oh you can't I said I can be better than Jeffrey so I put it on my head so I had this tray of glasses on my head and of course just standing still is perfect <laughs> so somebody suggested that I did a squat. Oh, gosh. Thank God it was Hollywood. It was easily replaced. <laughs> glasses everywhere. Broken glass everywhere. <laughs> That's amazing. So, okay, so the series lasted for six seasons. I've heard rumors that there were moments that it did not seem like the series was going to continue. In fact, it got canceled at one point. Is that right? That's news to me. I don't know. I, I, I think the only controversy was that I'm aware of is perhaps the fact that, you know, we changed aunties. Yeah. So Vivian changed halfway through. I would love to hear from you. What were some of your maybe favorite Jeffrey moments over the course of those six seasons? Does anything jump out to you as like particularly, I just loved this line or this moment or this scene? What was that for you? The moments I loved most were the moments of physical comedy for Jeffrey. Mm -hmm. In the very first episode, when Will has just arrived. The doorbell rings. Jeffrey's walking out from stage right from the living room into the hallway and to the front door. And as he walks into the hallway, past the, <laughs> the banister, Will does a leapfrog over him, right? Yeah. So Will leapfrogs him in front of the door and opens the door before him. That is just pure Pure magic. I mean, absolute pure timing magic. There's another moment, oh God, I can't remember what the episode was called, where Jeffrey's got the vacuum cleaner and he's cleaning, I think he's upstairs, and there's this explosion and the camera pans and there's Jeffrey coming down the stairs, smoke coming out of his ears, his hair. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the other moment is um, the pool episode where there's a problem and they get into the pool hall and Philip says, <laughs> Jeffrey, break out Lucille and he gets this pool cue out of <laughs> So good. Uh, one of my favorite Jeffrey episodes is, and I'm, I'm blanking on it, I meant to go look it up last night before we jumped on this call. The episode where you're posing as a poet from like like a 70s oh, poet. Cannons to the left of them and cannons yeah. to the right of them, that scene. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the great episodes. Uh, I think it's called Deaf Poet Society. And he plays the poet Raphael de la Ghetto. De la Ghetto, that's right. I have lost many friends from that. <laughs> you know, that is not how you perform the charge of the light brigade. I said, well, a 19th century actor would have. Cannons to the left of them. Cannons. <laughs> if you knew how happy that just made me right now to hear you do that. <laughs> I was in fifth grade when this show debuted. And I mean, from the very first episode, yeah, I loved it. I've, I'm a lifelong admirer of Will Smith. I mean, more than just a fan, like I love Will Smith. And so when that show came out, I remember it being like a point of pride to show up at school the very next day and already have the theme song memorized. And so we, you know, me and some friends were like showing off for each other that we already knew all the words. And so, cause we just recorded it and watch it over and over and over. And so yeah. to hear you do a scene live is such a joy <laughs> for me. <laughs> Yes, Charge of the Light Brigade. It's, uh, 
<laughs> it's one it's one of those moments of pure magic i mean there are many others with other characters but for jeffrey himself i mean it really was an instance of pure writing genius by the writers of the show i mean just amazing there's another one where vivian's pregnant and she has a little bell that she rings every time she needs attention she needs jeffrey and <laughs> there's this moment where he grabs the bell and she holds on to his arm and there's no dialogue it's just this she's squeezing the lock the, those moments are just pure magic because i think at that time the characters were so well understood by the audiences that they knew how they would they, he would react he didn't have to say anything you know it's just those moments where you've been doing it long enough that your audiences have an empathy with you that they know exactly what's going on through your mind you know they they know yeah so from what i've read in other interviews with cast members the cast truly was like a family and so i would love to hear just you know now 30 years later what relationships from that show have sort of remained intact or remained deepest for you from the show for me it's sad in a sense but it's a celebration in the truest sense was my friendship with james avery mm. i think because he was the first person i had met when i arrived and we in an indirect way help prop each other up give each other the confidence required for what was about to come um we were friends we remained very very close friends until his death it was i who was I happened to be in los angeles staying with him when you know his first heart attack uh, mm. happened and uh, it was i that called his wife got him to the hospital etc etc that was a very close relationship i think and it's also because we're of the same age group my relationship with alfonso and with will is very close but they are younger men Mm-hmm. I still have a very close relationship with Karen Parsons. I happened to have been touring with Shakespeare's Globe about two or three years ago, playing King Lear, and we went to New York and to see her again in a, in a kind of <laughs> not in uniform, but in, in as ourselves was a lot of fun. And then a few weeks ago, we had a, a virtual reunion. Yes, I saw this on social media. It was amazing. It's extraordinary. I mean, and it's the rekindling and the remembering of those great moments. I think we, in my opinion, we got on really well together. Firstly, because we were all new to that medium. And secondly, the nature of our work was that we were a family, you know, a family that was made up of these people. And whether we liked it or not, we had to complement and support each other. and we did through some very sticky moments we went on vacation together during the holidays and things like that i have to say it was one of the special moments in my career yeah just absolutely special we made each other laugh <laughs> we embarrassed each other <laughs> we we assisted each other when we had moments sometimes i'd have a problem i'd say to Ken Parsons i mean how would an american say this you know yeah. and to think i mean I, I, at that time i had been an actor for oh my god at least 25 years and you know to ask a younger actor how one would we had that confidence with each other that you know it was simply about the work we were doing yeah. 
Joseph, I want to thank you so much for taking the time, especially during this quarantine when there's so little else to do, to be a part of 30 Pop and just to regale me with your stories. It's such a privilege for me. So thank you so much for being a part of the show. Thank you for getting me out of the garden, um, rekindling a lot of uh, wonderful memories. And uh, I'll say it again, as James used to say, Luke, Salis. <laughs> thank you so much. So much fun. If my fifth grade self or my fifth grade friends could see me now chatting it up with freaking Jeffrey, the best. But that's not all. A week or so after my conversation with Joseph, I heard back from Daphne Maxwell-Reed, the actress who took over the role of Vivian Banks for seasons four through six. So we hopped on a call too to talk about that exciting transition in the show. Here's our chat. Daphne Reed, thank you so much for being on 30 Pop. It is such a joy to have you on today. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me, Luke. Of course. So 30 years ago this week, The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air debuted on NBC. You were not a part of the original cast, but you did come in in season four to take over the role of Aunt Vivian. This was like one of the biggest major role cast changes in TV history. And so I would love to hear what that experience was like for you coming in halfway through the series and taking over this very important character. Well, I had had quite a lovely career on television mm -hmm. and was asked to audition for Fresh Prince at the beginning, the inception of Prince. Really? Okay. And I had just finished with about four years of back-to-back -back series with my husband and I was exhausted. <laughs> and they said, well, it's a half hour sitcom with a, a rapper. And I said, uh, no, <laughs> very much. I'm taking a pause. And when I got paused and the show came on that fall and I saw what it was, I said, oh, what a cute show. I'm so sorry I didn't go audition for it. But three years later, as I am lounging at my farm, they called and said, we're having an audition for Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. And I said, where is it? When is it? I'll be there. <laughs> and I went out to L.A. and spent two and a half weeks auditioning for this. I must have gone to the original audition and about four callbacks. Wow. Well, about the second or third audition, I got to work with James Avery and we just clicked. So when it came to the last audition, which was before the network, it was down to three women. And I went in there and I was already in love with James Avery. So we had a great audition. <laughs> and then I had to wait an entire day to find out who they had chosen. Oh, wow. And that was a long day. I that bet. was a long day. But once they told me that I had gotten the role, I actually cried. I was so overjoyed. Oh, that's so awesome. So can I tell you what I love most about your Vivian or about this whole transition <laughs> in general? So we've seen this on some other major sitcoms, even around that time. Roseanne had a big cast change, the very famous Bewitched cast change of Darren. Mm -hmm. But what I love about the Vivian 
cast change is that you came into that role and you played it completely different. And I, what actually happened is it didn't feel like a different character. It just felt like the character got to be more complex. And so I felt like Janet did an incredible job the first three seasons, sort of highlighting particular characteristics about Aunt Vivian. And then you came in and, and were sort of a softer, more nurturing version of the same person. You didn't come in and just try to give us her Vivian. You came in and just I gave us a deeper Vivian. Vivian very well. So that was <laughs> so, that's part of what I was curious about. It was were you familiar with the show? Had you followed it for those three years? Not followed it. I had seen a couple of episodes, mm-hmm. but no, I hadn't followed it. That's amazing. But I just thought it was a really cool family situation. Mm-hmm. So great. So what was it like? for you getting to work with that cast that was already so established and already sort of had a dynamic in place. Mm -hmm. What was it like for you to sort of on-ramp into that? It was probably one of the easiest transitions that has ever happened. I arrived in my dressing room on the first day. And to tell you the truth, I had been on television for maybe 15 or 20 years. I had starred in series and I had guest starred in series, but they were all shot film style. Mm. This was the first time I was doing a live studio audience show. So I had a little trepidation. I got there and in my dressing room were dozens of red roses and a welcome. Oh, that's sweet. And I got hugs and respect and love from all the cast members. And it was like I had been there the whole time. And we just eased right into the first episode. And as soon as the first audience reaction came, I relaxed. And I really had a ball working with them. They were such wonderful people. That's amazing. So I rewatched that first episode this morning before we got on the call. It was uh, Where There's a Will, There's a Way, part one. It's the episode where Will and Carlton leave home. They go off to college. And there's a really, really great moment at the beginning of the episode where the first time that they sort of acknowledge that there's been a cast change, you're, I think, holding baby Nikki and Jazz comes in and is sort of looking at you funny. Brings a gift, yeah. And then just says, something looks different about you. I just, I love that moment. Is that the moment you're talking about where the crowd sort of reacted for the first time? It is, but it was just the introduction at the beginning of the episode. It wasn't even on camera. Okay. Once we got to starting the first episode. And that happens to be my favorite episode because I love the way, well, Jazz says, you sure look different since you had that baby. And Will broke the fourth wall and looked right in the camera. And that was all that was said about it. I thought it was brilliant. It was done. Now move on. It was so good. It's funny when I watched that episode, I couldn't believe how many of like my favorite moments from the series. And I was a diehard fan from day one. I mean, I loved this show, but so many of like the moments from the entire series that really sort of linger in my mind and my memory are from that episode. So one of those being the moment when Ashley comes home from the mall with this young man and, you know, uncle Phil asks him what his name is and he hands him a card and, uh, (laughs) And says, you know, this, it's a symbol like Prince or whatever. And then he chases him out of the house and then Ashley just screams, daddy, I love him or whatever. There's just so many moments like that that were from that one episode. I just couldn't believe how many great moments. Hell of a way to start the fourth season. (laughs) Yes. So good. So I would love to hear if there were particular moments, Aunt Viv moments specifically, that were most memorable or that you just really, really, you know, cherish today? 
the moments that I really cherish are the ones that even aren't on camera. Mm. There were rehearsal days sitting on the couch with James Avery and Will and Alfonso and Karen and Ta and just talking about real life and Mm. culture and literature and philosophy and having these wonderful exchanges of ideas. It was a lovely, lovely place to work. But as far as shows are concerned, one of my favorites is when Boys to Men showed up for Nikki's christening. And I was a huge fan of Boys to Men. Of course. <laughs> so I was very moved that they were there and just absolutely loved that episode. I'm trying to think of the episodes because there were, when you get to be my age and you've done so many shows, why, when, what was that yeah. one? Okay. I try very hard to remember what specific episode sure, was yeah. wonderful. The episode where I got mad at Uncle Phil and we had to have dinner or something together. And it was just getting him back to realizing who I was. And I love that episode. I love the flashback we did to Soul Train. Mm. That was a fun oh, man. episode. I haven't seen that in so long. Yeah. I've been trying to rewatch the series to sort of prep for this episode of the podcast, but I'm just not quite there yet. So it's been yeah. so much fun to relive. One of the things that's jumped out at me, especially watching it over the last couple months and all of the energy that's happening socially around especially the Black Lives Matter movement and just the efforts being made to create justice in a society where we just haven't seen it. To look back and see, even in this really sort of silly, fun sitcom, the effort that was going into like calling these things out, you know, even 30 years ago. And I get that this movement has been going on for far longer than 30 years, but it is interesting to see the ways in which this show and several shows, but this show was calling out some of the things that we're still trying to get right in society today or that we need to be getting right in society today. What brings that to mind is you said that, you know, y'all would sit around off camera and talk about culture and kind of what the world looked like. And I have to assume that that's some of what was going into those conversations. Because the world looked the same, unfortunately, then. But James and I are, were generationally informed, and the kids were soaking up <laughs> everything that we had been through and done, mm. and realizing the struggles that they had were the same struggles that we had, mm. and that it was repeating itself again. And the frustration has finally, I guess, this year hit the boiling point, and I think we can thank the pandemic Mm. because everybody was at home and all the kids weren't in school. So they got to experience the rage without being able to set it aside, being busy doing something else. Yeah. Yeah. And I hope they continue to make the points that need to be made and make the systematic changes that need to be made. Yes. We've been through this already. (laughs) We get to do it again because it didn't get done. Yeah. The preference was always on top of familial things Mm -hmm. that were culturally accurate to our community. We had table readings and we would come in on Monday and read the script that was supposed to be the show that week. And we were allowed to voice our concerns or make any changes that we thought culturally appropriate. And I remember one 
And there were, of course, a lot of white writers on the show. Mm -hmm. And they had written Ashley doing something, saying something to James. And James and I looked at each other at the table reading. We said, that girl wouldn't have any teeth if she said that to me. <laughs> you don't do that. Wow. <laughs> and they said, oh, well, we'll change that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That That's not appropriate. That's amazing that y'all had that sort of creative input as well. I mean, that you weren't just hand a script and told to deal with it. Yeah. No, 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 no. And Will is a good, strong leader. And James was a very talented and insightful historian and cultural representative, basically. And no, but this is not appropriate. Okay, we can go this way. Okay, let's do that. Yeah. So they, they I was a very pleased that they listened. So by the time you came on, Will had already sort of catapulted into mega stardom. I mean, like the show had done so much for his career already, but you were there as he was sort of making the leap into film, like really doing yeah. big time film. What was it like working with him through that season of life that's still playing out 30 years later? I remember after he had done six degrees of separation mm -hmm. and we were on the couch and James and I said, Will, almost a great performance. <laughs> But if you're going to commit to a character, you have to commit to the character. And he said, well, I didn't want, you know, the brothers to think I was gay. So I, I said, are you an actor or are you worried about the hood? And it was we could see the light bulb go on. In his mm. head. And James was very frank with him. He was always asking James about things. He was like a grand poobah. <laughs> to Will. He just was such a wise and and wonderful man. I really miss him yeah. as a person. Yeah. yeah. It's funny. I was just watching this past week a movie that I hadn't seen in years and completely forgot that he had a role in. I was watching the movie Fletch with Chevy Chase mm -hmm. and he plays one of the dirty cops. And he's actually, it's just, it was really great to sort of see him in this role that's so different from Uncle Phil, which is how I know him. I mean, I, you know, right. even calling him James feels like I have to kind of remind myself who James is, but Uncle Phil, he, yeah, he Uncle felt Phil like, felt like an uncle to all of us. Yeah. yeah. So, people ask me, does it bother you when people call you Aunt Phil? I'm going, not at all. <laughs> not at all. I'm very proud to be in there. Well, so one thing that I didn't realize until getting ready for this interview is who your husband is. Oh. So, so your husband. We thought that was common knowledge. Yeah. Well, and I'm sure it is. I just, you know, I was a kid. So when, when, and uh, uh, especially his heyday of doing. Yeah, romance didn't play into your life. <laughs> not yet. But so your husband, Tam, played Venus Flytrap on WKRP in Cincinnati, another show that I love, even though it was kind of before my time. I did grow uh -huh. up watching reruns of it, and I and I loved it, loved that character, and I was so excited to learn that that's who your husband is. So Yeah, 38 years. Daphne, thank you so much for taking some time to be on 30 Pop my this friend. week. It is such a treat for me to get to talk to you. Uh, we also had Joseph on the episode, some other folks, and so this is such a, a highlight for me. I love it. So Excellent. But we've got plenty of stories, so keep it up. Thanks so much. We'll talk to you soon. Okay. Seriously, though, you have no idea how much I enjoyed those conversations. There was actually even a little more to each conversation. Both Joseph and Daphne shared with me their five favorite episodes of Fresh Prince. 
and I'll be posting those shortly for those of you who have joined our neighborhood over on Patreon. If you haven't done so yet, here's what you need to know. We're building a neighborhood of storytellers, and you're invited to be a part of it. When I say we, I mean Milieu Media Group, the little podcast network that I own, and the community who, thankfully, sees value in the stories we're telling and chooses to partner with us each month to help us keep telling them. You can join for as little as a dollar a month and receive bonus behind-the-scenes content from this and other Milieu Media Group podcasts. Or you can just keep enjoying them for free. No pressure. Just an invitation. All right, friends, that does it for this week. We've got some more Fresh Prince goodness coming over the next few weeks, so stay tuned. In the meantime, if you have any fun, fond memories of Fresh Prince or anything really and want to be on the show, then go to 30pop.com and leave me a message on the 30pop answering machine. I would love to hear from you. I'll be back next week, friends. Until then, remember, life is too short, but now it's kind of funky. 30 Pop is produced, edited, and mixed by me, Luke Bronner. Our artwork is by the amazing Heather Hale. To check out more shows from Mill U Media Group, visit millumedia.com, which is linked in the show notes for this episode. And if you have a story from 1990 that you want to share on the air, email 30poppodcast at gmail.com. 